0: Now since we've started this series in 1 Peter we've been focused in the first couple of verses where Peter has been expounding to us the glories of the Trinity and we've spent four sermons on two verses and we're going to start picking up the pace today. But because we've been so focused it's good to step back and just have a rethink of the big picture about why Peter wrote this letter. Why did Peter put pen to paper? Well, it's to help Christ followers deal with trials and sufferings, mainly because of their faith, but also the general sufferings and trials that come our way just because we're human. And not only that, not only to show that we can endure our sufferings, but that we can find joy as we stand firm with our faith growing in confidence, no matter what assails us. Now, not every verse of every paragraph 1 Peter deals directly with suffering. However, everything he writes is undergirding our ability to stand firm while finding joy. And at the beginning, that's why he's laying such a, a rich and firm foundation. And that's why we spent so much time looking at God the Father who chooses us, who chose us, but since before the foundation of the world. And then we went on to look at God the Son, who atones, makes us at one by his blood. And then we saw that it's God the Spirit who sanctifies, who sets us apart and molds us to be more like Christ. That's the foundation that we stand on as we face the trials and the sufferings that come our way. Uh, And let me give you an example of how this works. John Piper is a well-known American preacher and he tells a story about when he preached a sermon series on great doctrinal truths, the majesty and splendour of God, but didn't have much, by the way, of application. Now, a few months later, a young couple came to him after church and expressed how grateful they were for that sermon series. You see, during that time, they had suffered a great loss. The wife had been pregnant, but she lost the baby at a full-term miscarriage. And, of course, they were devastated. And yet, unbeknown to Piper, as he preached the glory and the majesty of God, what we might call doctrinal truths, they were encouraged and lifted out of their misery and had the strength to seek solace and comfort from God and from family and friends. And so it it bestows us to spend time pondering the great goodness and the mercy and the grace of God and some of these wonderful big themes that we've been continuing because that undergirds for us when the difficult times, like when grief and loss come our way, we put our feet firmly in the fact that God chose us before the beginning of time, that Christ's blood makes us at one with God and the Holy Spirit is doing a work within us. And with this in mind, we move on to the next three verses where Peter continues to build the foundation. But he turns from talking about the Trinity and summarizing that to summarizing our salvation, to summarizing our salvation, what it means to be saved. And so here in three verses, we have this wonderful, concise explanation of what it means to be saved. See if you can pick that theme up as I read those three verses, the theme of... that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you notice the theme of salvation running? uh... In particular, did you notice something unusual with the phrase until the coming of the salvation? It seems to indicate that salvation has not yet come yet. And you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. Don't we already have salvation? Don't we sing wonderful songs, thanking God that we've received salvation? What is this, we will receive salvation in the future? And this is where it gets interesting. You see, salvation has a past aspect. Things happened at our conversion in the past. They have a present aspect. We are being saved in the here and now. But there's also a future aspect to our salvation. And that's going to be our focus this morning. We're going to look first at what happened in the past when we were saved. What do we already have locked and loaded? What about our present salvation? How are we receiving salvation today? We received salvation in the past, but the Bible says we are receiving salvation day by day and also our future salvation. Because the Bible tells us we will receive more when Jesus comes again. And so we're going to open up the passage in 1 Peter, those three verses, in that context. So, first of all, our past salvation. What aspect of salvation do we have today? Let's look at verse 3. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what does this tell us about salvation that we already have? It tells us two things tells us, first of all, that we are born again. And the second thing is it tells us that it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are born again. So those are the two aspects we're going to look at. Born again, resurrection. Now, when it comes to being born again, we're not going to go into great detail today because at the end of chapter 1, Peter goes back to being born again and explains in more detail what that means. So we're going to do that then. One thing to make clear, though, about being born again, Uh, born again is something that happens to every Christian. All Christians are born again. There are no exceptions. Now, in the 70s, the phrase born again Christian started to be used. You might remember that time, born again Christian. And, And why did that phrase become popular within the church and even sometimes outside the church People used to use the phrase born-again Christian. Well, it was a helpful challenge because back in the 60s and the 70s, a good number of people, a lot more than come to church today, they were attending. However, they were attending for all sorts of reasons. Some of them had grown up in the church and just continued. The folk felt that if they came to church, that would please God and they'd get into heaven. So there was a whole bunch of misconceptions. And so by asking people whether they are a born-again Christian, it challenged them. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And so in its time, that phrase was very helpful because it challenged people about, are you just coming to church? Because that's not going to save you any more than going to McDonald's is going to make you a hamburger. That doesn't work, does it? It's the same with coming to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. However, what then sprung up around this phrase was it seemed like there were two types of Christians. They were Christians and some were born again ones, and then a lot of others they weren't. And that's a very common misinterpretation. It's not like there's Christians and some are born again and some are not. Basically, this phrase is what linguistically is called a redundancy. Let me explain what that is. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a friend of his who was called Paul Little. And Paul Little used to joke that his name was a redundancy because Paul means little. So his name meant little, little. And he found that quite amusing. It was a redundancy. And born-again Christian is like that as well. Because if you're born again, you must be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you must be born again. Now, we're going to explore that and open up. There's lots of questions that may come to mind about that. But if you ever look at the end of 1 Peter, you'll see that Peter opens that up. And we're going to come back to that. But the thing is, for today, when we were converted, when we asked Christ into our life, we were born again. And that's happened. It happened in the past. It continues today. But it's something that we have. And this comes all through the resurrection of Jesus, through Being resurrected. And that's the second thing we're going to look at today. He has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, this happened in the past as well. But how does the resurrection of Jesus uh, achieve our salvation? Well, to look at this, we're going to have a look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Now, just before we do, in the Bible, the Death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection are always linked, but they don't always mention both. So often, uh, the Bible will talk about uh, the death of Christ on the cross, and the resurrection is implied. In this case, we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, but the death is implied. They always go to dig together, even if they're not explicitly mentioned. So we'll go and turn to Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen to fourteen. And the question is, how does the cross and resurrection lead to our salvation? Verse 13, God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So we are saved from slavery to sin. How are we forgiven? How are we saved? Well, according to Colossians 2, The written code, with all its regulations, that legal document, heavenly legal document, declaring we had all sinned, declaring that the wages of sin are death, this legal documentation has been taken away. It's been nailed to the cross. The judgment against us has been nailed to the cross. And when Christ was rose from the dead, those regulations, that code, stayed nailed to the cross and no longer count. Because of the resurrection, we are born again, but we are also saved from the penalty of sin. That's what happens right now. As I stand here, by the grace of God saved, I am saved from the penalty of sin. Because that written code that is against every person has been nailed to the cross. And that has happened in the past, And every Christian is saved from the penalty of sin. So that's what we have in the here and now. That's what we have in the present tense. What about, oh sorry, a past tense. That's what has happened in the past. Now we're going to explore what happens in the present. Because a couple of verses on, in verse 9, Peter says, "'You are receiving the salvation of your souls.'" Chapter 1, verse 9, you are receiving, present tense, today, the salvation of your souls. Again, in verses 3 and 5, there are two things that are highlighted when it comes to what we are receiving of our salvation today. We were born again by the resurrection of Christ, that's our salvation. Today, what are we receiving? Well, two things, and I've highlighted them up on the the board. You'll see that we are saved into a, a living hope. And we are shielded by God's power. So we'll open up those two things. What does a living hope mean that I have day by day? What does being shielded by God's power day by day mean? Well, let's first uh, look at hope. Now, the word used by the Bible for hope is used in a very different way than its common use in everyday life. In everyday life, hope, is the optimistic future expectation that may or may not be based on evidence and may or may not happen. So hope is optimistic about a future outcome, a future expectation. Let me give you a couple of examples how hope is used in the world. (coughs) You and a friend might have an exam that's coming up and your friend has studied hard and your friend says, I hope I pass. This is optimistic and realistic, and it's based on evidence, isn't it? It's likely that that friend of yours will pass. It's not guaranteed, but that's an optimistic hope. However, I've done no study. I have slacked around, and I say to my friend, I hope I pass too. Is it optimistic? Yes. Is it based on evidence? No. And is there any guarantee? Certainly not. Now those are both common ways that we use hope, don't we? We use hope sometimes and there's this, you know we, it's realistic and sometimes we use hope and it's not realistic at all. Now the Bible uses hope in a very different way than that and it uses it like this. In the Bible, hope is the joyful expectation or the joyful anticipation of the goodness of God and it's not necessarily based on evidence, it's based on faith. The joyful anticipation of the goodness of God of God. Biblical hope is a sure and steadfast knowledge that the God's, God's promises will come true. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's optimistic, like the hope that we use every day, but instead of the, and the outcome not being guaranteed in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of hope, the outcome is guaranteed. And of course we have a living hope. Now what's an example of living hope. Well, I'm going to give you an example of living hope that, uh, that I have. It's a bit of an uh, interesting example, but I think you'll get the point. Now, if you're an All Blacks supporter, the last 12 months have been pretty tough, haven't they? It's been hard work being an All Blacks supporter. The end of tour, end-of-year tour last year was horrible, and this year the All Blacks lost to Argentina and Ireland for the first time at home. So stress levels go through the roof when anyone turns on the TV to watch an All Black game. So you know what I've started to doing? I have started to record the delayed coverage and watch it only after I find the result. Now, I don't want to know I don't want to know the score. I don't want to know who got yellow carded. Oh, you're red carded. I don't want to know who, you know, whether the all black captain has been, you know, has an injury again. I don't want to know any of the details. I just want to know yes or no, win or loss. And you might think, as better all black supporters, that I'm copping out, and you'd probably be right. But it does reduce my stress levels when I watch the pre recorded game. Now, a living hope. A biblical living hope is is similar to this, because we know the end result. We know that Jesus will come again and set all things right, don't we? But we don't know how, and we don't know when he's going to do that, and what circumstances, and we don't know any of the details. In the same way that I don't know any of the details of this morning's early match, but I did find out the result. And so I will watch it with my stress levels right down. Now, a biblical hope, now you all black supporters, you true all black supporters, probably won't listen to anything I say for the rest of the message, because you'll be so annoyed with your wussy minister. But can you get the point? The point is, whether it's right or wrong, the point is, a living hope means that we know the result. We know that Christ will come again, And we know that he will put all things right. But we don't know when and where or how. And that's what a living hope is. Living hope hopes in God despite all the evidence saying otherwise. And that's what a living hope is. The second thing we're told about here is that we are... Oh, there's just a photo of beating the Australians. That warms the cockles of everyone's heart, really, doesn't it? Um, but we'll move on. <laughs> That's the first thing that we have today: a living hope, not a not a, um, a wishful thinking, but a firm and steadfast hope in God's promises. The second thing that we are told in this verse is that we are shielded by God's power. We are protected by God's power. And what are we shielded from? Why do we need protection? Well, a little later in 1 Peter, we are told this in verse uh, verse 8 and verse 9. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And so, in uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 5, we are told that we are shielded by God's great power. We are protected. Who are we protected from? Well, we're protected from that roaring lion. We're protected from all the slings and the arrows that the world throws at at us. We're even protected from the self-sabotage within us that tends to derail our lives. We are shielded by God's power day by day in the present. We are receiving that protection. In the Old Testament, they use a, a similar image of being shielded, but instead of using a military shield like we have here in 1 Peter, the image in the Old Testament tends to be of a mother bird shielding or sheltering her young. We had that read in uh, Psalm 91 today. God will cover you with his feathers, and under his, wing, under his wings you will find refuge. Psalm 91, four. Wonderful passage, isn't it? And Psalm 63, 7. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Be assured, dearly loved child of God, that you are being shielded by God's power. And as you draw close to him, the living God will draw close to you and shelter you under his wings. So in the past... At conversion, we were born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now, in the present, we are receiving what? We are receiving a living hope today that God's promises that are good for us will come through. And we're receiving also that protection, that shield of God's power. And tomorrow, what will happen tomorrow? Tomorrow I will still be living hope. We'll still have that living hope. And I'll still be shielded. And the next day, I will be receiving exactly the same and the day after until I meet Christ in glory. And so that is what we are receiving day by day. But what about our future salvation? What will happen in the future? Uh, We see this in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And we are coming into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And so our future inheritance or future salvation is all about inheritance. What is being stored up even now for us when we get to heaven. Now, many of us maybe um, have received an inheritance in the past where one generation has blessed another and passed on an inheritance. Yet no matter what inheritance you may have received or may receive in the future will be nothing compared to the inheritance that you and I receive as a daughter or son of the living God. And these treasures, this inheritance, is stored up for us where it will not perish, spoil, or fade. You see, in this life, in this life, time destroys most hopes. They fade and they die. But the passing of time only makes our hope in Christ more glorious, more wonderful, more sure. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 4 <clears throat> And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Who's the chief shepherd? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? When he returns again, we will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So we'll receive this inheritance of which a crown, a royal crown, will be a symbol of all the inheritance that we receive. And then with great joy, we will fall on our knees and cast that crown before the great shepherd as we worship and adore him. And we will be then saved from the presence of sin. We're saved from the presence of sin. You see... In the past, when we were born again, we were saved from the penalty of sin. Day by day, we've been saved by the power of sin. And soon, we will be saved from the presence of sin. And much more can be said about our salvation. And Peter will, as he goes through his letter, he will open up more and more of the treasures that we have in Christ because we are saved. Remember, he's laying a foundation And in these three verses, he has summed up what it means to be saved. And as the letter develops, he will open up and expand more on those. So as we come to the communion table, what have we learned this morning? What have we looked at? Well, we looked at three things. We've been saved from the penalty of sin because Christ rose again. Because that written code that was against us was nailed to the cross and stayed dead and buried with him. When Christ rose from the dead, we were set free. And when we ask Christ into our life, we are born again. Uh, some people will tell you the date when that happened. And it was a tremendous experience. And others will say, well, I can't quite remember when it happened. <laughs> but it happened. And that's fine. We're born again. Saved from the penalty of sin. Second thing we've looked at is that we have a living hope. And we are shielded day by day by God's power. And so we are saved by, from the power of sin. We are saved from the power of sin because God's power of protection is greater. And finally, we looked at the future. We will be saved from God's, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Christ will return and sin's hold on us will be 100% broken, defeated, and banished from the presence of God and from the presence of us. And we will receive that inheritance secure that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And this is the sure and steadfast and living hope that we have as we approach the communion table. And as we do, we know none of us are worthy. We know none of us are deserving. However, we come to communion confident that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that we are being changed, set apart by the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ. And as we take the bread and the cup, Christ's blood, makes us at one with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.